0: bright sofa covers. I had my elder sister Julia to squabble and snigger with, and a big garden to play in, but only Rue for a friend. Rue lived the best part of a mile away, in an ancient black-and-white farmhouse called Cider Press, down where a straggle of red-brick houses and half-timbered cottages circled round a loop of lane. As soon as my mother judged me old enough to be out of doors on my own, probably at six or seven years old, I was pelting down to cider press, day after day, to escape with Rue into the promised land of the ridgy fields beyond. That was flood country, the January realm of King Seven at his maddest, a no man's land where you could choose sour cider apples from the abandoned orchards, and taunt the cows into giving chase, where you could run unsupervised across the big meadow, as far as your gumboots would let you. For a restless little boy with a superheated imagination. And a proper partner in crime to call on, it was pure heaven. And I could get to heaven on my tricycle in fifteen minutes, barring accidents. When I got to school I found that all the other children knew what their fathers did. Fathers sold things in shops, or pulled out people's teeth, or ploughed the fields and scattered, or were away fighting for the queen. My father was different. He drove off in the car every morning to work in Cheltenham, He came back home at night, mostly, unless it was one of the times when he was away somewhere abroad, wherever that was. What he did for a living, though, was a mystery. Daddy, where do you work? In Cheltenham. What do you do? I work at the office. But then almost everything to do with grown-ups was a mystery. Rue and I decide to start today's perambulation at St. Catherine's Church, up on high ground, and to beat the bounds of our childhood along the village lanes and field edges as far as the floods will allow us. Wandering round the churchyard before we start I get a shock. Almost all the folk who peopled my boyhood at the Lye are here, neatly stretched out under headstones marked with information about themselves that I can scarcely credit. They seemed as old as the hills to me back then, but these dates say that they were in their twenties and thirties most of them when I first knew them the age that my own children are now. The Quimbys and the Thayers, the Troutons and the Poultons, the Westons, the Tickles, the Chandlers and the Freemans. I have hardly given a thought during my adult lifetime to these people who formed my view of what people should be. As we set off from the churchyard towards the village, the January ghost of my father comes striding energetically towards us along the well-worn road in a heavy blue winter coat. Under the coat he's wearing one of his father's old suits with flapping lapels. His tie is neatly tied, his dark hair well disciplined, his black shoes impeccably shined. Some nonsense or other back at Hofield House has made the family late for church, and Dad's sense of duty has driven him out ahead of his flock to walk the road alone, striding himself free of irritation. I remember how your father used to step out on his way to church, says Rue, big long strides, all chin up and shoulders back. No one else walked like that. We passed the red-brick house where green-fingered Harry Wilkes lived. Harry's wife had the beautiful name of Marguerite, pronounced Margaret. Harry invariably made a clean sweep of the cups at the horticultural show. Margaret provided the village with new-laid eggs, half a dozen at a time, in a brown paper bag. Just beyond the Wilkes' house, the tributary lane from the lower village comes in on the left. Opposite the junction is the big field where Rue and I once sat on the gate and watched a two-horse team harvesting with a reaper binder. One of the horses was called Blackbird, Blackie for short, and wore a little straw hat with holes cut out for its ears to poke through. The reaper binder had a clattering drum of whirling wooden bars that fed the harvest to the cutter and on up into the belly of the machine which simultaneously ejected a line of neatly tied bundles of corn onto the ground. These were forked up into conical stooks once the field was cut, and left for a cart to gather before the raid set in. The line must have been just about the last place in Gloucestershire to use such antiquated machinery and methods at that date. It was a different world down our lane. From the junction by the harvest field my way home lay straight ahead, past the village school and up the slope. The crest of the ridge overlooked the main road, the A38, where Austin cars and AEC Mammoth Major lorries and Midland Red buses hurtled noisily along from Gloucester to Tewkesbury. On the ridge stood Hofield House.